Before we get into the show, here's a quick word from HubSpot. Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work. Thankfully, HubSpot for Startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects all your teams together. Plus, they have a bunch of resources to help you scale, and they offer discounts up to 90% off. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for Startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Green, your podcast for how you grow your business today and tomorrow. I am your co-host, Kit Bodner. I am joined as always by my podcasting partner from across the pond, Kieran Flanagan, who is already getting into it with our very special guests about his <laughs> dipping his pizza crust into mashed potatoes before we even record it. And with that, with that fun introduction, I want to welcome in a very special guest, Yulia Bell who's the co-founder of Notice. And we, the three of us, are going to dive deep into community and community-led growth for today's topic. But before we get into that, Kieran, Yulia, what's going on? Uh, we're just chatting up about uh, possible July 4th foods. Yeah, We're going to dive in around uh, why Kieran thinks it's a good idea to have a mashed potato topping and a pizza. I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm telling you. <laughs> I'll give you a breakfast that is a combination of weird stuff, but it's really cool as well. <laughs> no, it's going to get worse. Someone asked me about this on Twitter. Okay, like my special go-to breakfast is a sugar-free muesli mixed with a sugar-free chocolate granola mixed with special K. <laughs> oh, that sounds horrible. And so that can be your July the 4th <laughs> meal, a trifle of cereals followed by pizza and mashed potatoes, followed by one square, Kip knows this, <laughs> if you really want to treat yourself, one square of dark chocolate that's 85%. It has to be above 70%. Below 70% is bad for you. Let's go. <laughs> this is not you know, medical advice. That is some very disturbing food selections. I'm just I'm just going to put that out there. I don't know. Yulia, you're the guest. What, like, what do you think of Karen? Weird food. And how did you discover it? Like, I'm really curious. What is this origin? Just iteration. I just like iterate on things I think would go well together. I can't cook, by the way. I'm not, I can't cook anything really. <laughs> so hence his meal suggestion is three cereals mixed together. I do this incredibly scientific thing where I take things and then I just mix them together and see if they taste nice. What's for you and Kip, what is your like one secret food thing that other people would find weird that you enjoy? I'm actually not too sure. Like, I don't know. I kind of eat everything. I feel like maybe like the weirdest thing that I have tried is eel. And like, I just think a consistency is really, it's not my thing, but I would still try it. I ate bees in Japan once. That was weird. Bees? Bees, yeah. I kept told me that when I was sitting at a table. I did tell him he shouldn't tell that story publicly. <laughs> well, I now really, we, ha we have to tell it, Kim. <laughs> I was at a very nice restaurant in Tokyo, and it was one of those restaurants where they, you know, you don't order off a menu. They bring you whatever they're making for everybody that night. And one of the menu items were bees that were like kind of <laughs> crispy fried up in a wok served on top of some rice with kind of like a milk style, like creamy style sauce. I don't even know what, what was actually in the sauce, but it was like a very light, thin, but kind of dairy kind of sauce. That was the dish and uh, it was way better than you would think. Uh, I ate it all. It was, it was really good. If you have issues with that from an environmental perspective, please <laughs> at Kip at, uh, that's the reason I said not to tell it. It was really not because it's weird. It's because I think bees are pretty <laughs> important to the future of humanity. And so uh, I, well, at Kip Bodner on Twitter. I didn't order Twitter, the bees. They just brought me the 
Could they force Kip to eat bees? All right. Now that we've talked enough <laughs> about food, I got to give Yulia the floor for a second. Give us the story of like how you got here. You and I met on Twitter because I was super interested in what you were doing at Notice. Like, Tell us a little bit about your journey to community and, and what you're doing with Notice. Yeah. So my journey was very circumnavigating, I would say. So I started out in politics. I kind of like to refer it back as my first startup experience where it was my first job out of college and I was running a campaign office. And it was just the coolest thing to be able to have so much responsibility at such a young age. I had kind of no clue what I was doing, but I had a kind of a gut feeling around, hey, like there's these different stakeholders and they so passionately believe, like my office was located in Florida and we've had people travel from all the way from Illinois, road trip, take time off of work to go and canvas in the battleground state of Florida. And so this crazy level of passion, crazy level of community, you know, it's just, it's magic. Like when it really comes together, when people truly believe in something and they give it value, so much so that they can go and, and travel and take time off. There's just nothing like it. And so then I traveled to DC with, at that point, Vice President Biden. So I did a little bit of uh, kind of like press and events with their team. I uh, was part of the kind of inaugural procession. So that was super cool. And I went fully into that traditional media space. I worked at Edelman had a number of Beltway clients, uh, Fortune 50 clients, and saw the traditional side of how press is done. So, you know, you're reading the newspapers every single day, you're putting together the manual, like media press kits, uh, media lists, you're doing a lot of um, outreach, a lot of shots in the dark of reporters, getting reporters annoyed because you're spending so much time on like bugging them and, and trying to track them down in their emails. And I really saw that there's so much inefficiencies in this method where, you know, the world has come to just media has so decentralized. And I think user attention has also gotten so fragmented among social media, among just the general internet space, like the online communities. And so I saw kind of the break of something that used to work for so long, essentially breaking before my eyes. Didn't stick around to see how it got more broken. I went over to Bridgewater <laughs> and as one does. And I worked on the operation side for their tech team. And there, I would say it's almost like I saw a different size of community where I saw how culture, you know, truly defined principles really rule a group and how a group can be really organized around a specific set of those values and cultures. And so that was a really interesting kind of anthropological experiment on myself to see like, hey, like, is this, does this work? Like, what do we think of radical transparency? I actually really like that, uh, that process. You're, you're talking about like the Ray Dalio principles for everybody who understands. Like Bridgewater and Associates, one of the most successful investment firms in the world, right? But it's a very uniquely run organization. And that, I just want to give everybody listening the context of like, it's very unique in how that business is run. I mean, right from day one, we kind of, you start, you have this workshop where they tell you how radical transparency, it truly is radical transparency, right? So everything is recorded. You get feedback in real time. You really want to be able to get comfortable with knowing your weaknesses, actually running towards them. And I think that's where a lot of, you know, the whole emphasis on principle thinking and process level thinking, which I think is actually really helpful for startups where you really start to think about, hey, like if you remove all these inefficiencies or the motions of things and look at things truly as they are, 
which is an acquired skill. It takes, you know, with Bridgewater terms, it takes around a year and a half to get to that point of being comfortable and be able to truly almost like take off the blinders. Because I feel like a lot in cultures you, or even, you know, how us as humans have been conditioned to operate is that you don't want to be mean. And I think you guys kind of touched upon this with Alex Lieberman a little bit earlier, but you want to, you know, kind of like mask your insecurities, you want to mask your weaknesses, but it's actually you should be celebrating them because at the end of the day, this is how you improve. So uh, one of the things that I always remember is pain plus reflection equals progress. So you burn your hand on the stove, you think about it, you're like, oh, the stove is really hot. We should not be doing this. And then you (laughs) don't do that in the future. So anyways, spent some time in Bridgewater, saw how that, that level of community and culture really drives a group. And then I got really into tech. So my first put them in practice at a crypto startup. Uh, This is back in 2018. And I'm frankly, to this day, don't know how I got this job still. I was the first non-tech operator on this team and I knew nothing about crypto. In fact, I was going to the interview on the plane and reading uh, Digital Gold, the book, and trying to like cram everything about (laughs) communities and crypto and like the history of crypto and just to sound really smart in the interview. I got the job and one of the first things, you know, we had a really great tech team. Our head of of tech came from NASA JPL. We had some really like heavy hitters on the team. It was a crazy time in crypto. Crazy time, right? For everybody listening, if you weren't living through it then, it was kind of the wild, wild west, not, not really any regulation or This anything, would be right? near the ICO bust, right? Yes. It's, what did the company do? Actually, they must have done something. I mean, look, like it was a bit of a, we would put the cart before the horse for building a solution and trying to find a problem, mm. but the team was- <laughs> It sounds very web free. <laughs> it does, it does. Yeah, but the team was really good. And so we're trying our best to be like, hey, like, is this a, something for, you know, kind of like early web three? Is this a P2P play? Is this mm. um, like trying to like kind of like test out like like what feels right for a problem that we're solving. But essentially for me, like trying to be like, hey, where's our developer advocates? Like where's our community? How do we jumpstart this? I went into the sponge mode and I said, hey, like I'm going to learn everything it is that it takes to run a community, it takes to start a community. So I started talking to every single person on the team and just getting their thoughts. And that's actually how I met my co-founder, Tyler. Our very first conversation was literally just this, me asking a bunch of questions around like, hey, how do we know where to go online to find the type of people who would be interested in what we're building here. How do we go and understand what influences them? So in turn, like like not only finding those people, but seeing like what's top of mind for them, how can we start building those partnerships there? And maybe it's creators or other communities or even different social bubbles. Like, like what does that landscape look like? And when we really got down to it, we saw that there's no tools that did this. And it kind of set up that light bulb that if we're having issues with this, right? Like other teams are having issues with this. And so at that point, I kind of got back into my Edelman days where I was putting putting together manual lists and just spending a ton of time on Twitter, starting to see like, what are those conversations look like? Who are the main conversation setters? So I think at that point, Pomp was like, just like an emerging voice. And so we're like, oh, we got to talk to Pomp. And like, that was pretty much it. By the time that we started to have like a pretty good lay of the lands, we got acquired by Ripple. And it was just, it was really cool because obviously we had a totally different set of resources. And so at that point, my co-founder, I started working on a few projects. And then we realized, you know, not only kind of going back to what I was saying around media becoming so decentralized, we also saw that ads were really losing this like chokehold they had in everyone where ads are so inauthentic. 
Oh, don't get me started. No, please. No, I would. We want to get you started. Give us the ads rant, please. We've done it ourselves before, Akira and I. You're welcome to join the ads rant party. Yes. I mean, listen, like I, I think at the, at the end of the day, they had their time and place. And when the internet was first coming on the scene, right? Like the, even the search engine, it basically was like, you take yellow pages, put it on Google and that was kind of the internet. And so everything was indexed as like websites. How do you get better search results by jamming an SEO? Okay, great. Like that works for some time. But I think like anything in marketing, there comes a point where it becomes saturated, where people start to be like, okay, well, we've seen this before. It's no longer authentic. It's no longer really speaking to us. And so for us, we looked at all of this. And I think already this was kind of where the industry was going. I read the stat where essentially the effectiveness of ads is overinflated and overestimated by 4,000%, which is crazy. And so I think especially in this environment where everyone is looking, you know, given the economic market conditions, everyone's looking at their CAC and essentially thinking like, is this lemon worth the squeeze? Is there a way for us to get to that organic model? And actually not only just to save on CAC, but... Like our whole philosophy is that if you have a good product, if you have good content and invest in content, if you know how to get the distribution, that is sustainable compounding moat. That's the thing that like legendary cult-like status companies get to. And that's how you become the like the notion, the figmas, even I think the primary example being Tesla, where zero dollars in the ad budget, zero pay-for-play influencer um, campaigns, but there's literally like there's memes of people like taking a bullet for Elon. Like that's that level of awareness and loyalty and retention that you want to get at. And I think, again, like maybe from my Bridgewater days, but like our formula is product. You got to build what people want. Content, you got to write what people want to share and talk about. And then distribution, you got to get it to the places where they're at. Uh, we're going to do an episode on distribution and the evolution of distribution, perhaps the, the death of how we acquire customers today. There will never be as uh, efficient a uh, way to acquire customers as there is through paid advertising and Google. And what I mean by that is there will never be something so close to the transaction that you can actually monetize on in a very direct way, like build really good LTV to CAC models. And I don't think anything else will come close. And I think that's why they had such a hold over the market is because you truly can build, to some extent, a very efficient demand engine. Now, I think what the problem is, is marketing is an accelerant of societal changes or changes in the world. And they, they accelerate those things until there's diminishing returns. And so eventually, you can imagine when you first start paid advertising in Google, there's like percentage more winners than there are losers. And over time, there's much more losers than there are winners. And so there will still be winners in those buckets, but the amount of people losing is going to be much higher because there's so many more competing and it's been way more inefficient to actually compete there. I think that's what you're arguing is like paid advertising and search are very efficient channels for some, but as we move more and more online, they're not going to be efficient for all. Now, I will say the examples of companies who can do things like Telsa have done, like I think those markets have one or two winners. That's the problem, right? And so what does everyone else do? You know, our thought on this is that even before we like wrote a single line of code, we talked to 300 operators and communities and growth and marketers and contents, like you name it. We were actually trying to answer that exact question. Like, is this innate? Is this chance? Is it something that you know, obviously Tesla has a really great product, but we actually saw that kind of going back to a thread that I had recently where every company should be a media company. 
every company should essentially think like a content creator. And right. I feel like this is something I've seen so many threads, even before the pandemic, where everyone's like, every company is a media company. They just don't know yet. But they don't know what they mean when they say that. Yeah, but they don't know what they mean. You're totally right. So for me, my thought is that it came down to two things. Like when we really got down to like talking to a bunch of teams and it's either they did not know how, and I think maybe this is what you're referring to around that attribution piece. So it's like, why put in more resources to something that is not, we don't really know how, like how it actually affects the bottom line or two, what is our roadmap? Like, how do we get started? Or if we really had that like one lucky break where like our piece of content went into exactly the right circles, how do we replicate this? And how do we continue to be in those conversations? And so that's exactly what we're trying to do with Notice. Essentially kind of give them that data, give them the tools to be able to not only have that roadmap of knowing where to be online and to grow organically by doing so, and also then engage with the right people who are top of mind for your target audiences and turn them into advocates and customers. Like we have an answer for this, obviously, Kip, because we we bought a media company. But maybe let's go one layer deeper on the love this. Why should tech companies be media companies or have a media arm? Because it's easy to say that on Twitter. I think our listeners would really find it interesting to go a layer deeper. Yeah, I mean, the simple answer to this is that's literally how you grow. Like that's to us. It's like that's how you get that moat. Because if you're a media company, and what I mean by that, even like again breaking this down, you have to invest in really good content. And that's sometimes, you know, I feel like we're, we talk to, you know, kind of earlier stage companies and for them, they're like, oh, like what is really good content? You have to experiment. You have to figure out, kind of find your own voice. But essentially a good example of this is almost A16Z. This may be, okay, great. So record it. But listen, <laughs> our, our theory is go, that like go. the difference between A16Z and other funds is that they literally have an incredible media arm. I mean, they have good investments, but they have such a good media arm, right? Like they have future, they have all these different partnerships and, um, you know, collaborations with people that have a platform are in the bubbles that they themselves tap into. And so they have this continuous awareness of within the circles that they want to be in. And I think that they're doing it brilliantly because again, everyone's like, great, like that's, that's the funds. But I think for every tech company, they really, they have to have that playbook of you got to invest in really good content. You have to be creative. And that's sometimes kind of that blocker, but then you don't want to create content. I think Harry Stebbing said this correctly, where you want to be spending two times the amount on the distribution than in the content itself, because it's almost like, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to hear it, did it actually fall? And so for us, that distribution piece, which is where we're starting is you got to know where to be online to actually be captivating your audiences and building that consistent engagement with them. Because I think that Another thing that, again, tapping into some Twitter wisdom, but in every single thread on how do you build an audience, how do you retain an audience, you have to be consistent, you have to show up, and you have to have quality, like the quality of your engagement and the consistency of your engagement is really that piece to being part of the conversations and kind of going into the fabric of those communities where you may not have previously been. And that's how you start to kind of establish that either thought leadership or growing your community in those spaces. And I'm not sponsored by A16Z. <laughs> No, no. Uh, but my interpretation of what you're saying is that depending on your market, the more commoditizable your market is. Like, let's think about venture capital. Everybody's selling money. That's kind of a commodity good. The more media can help you differentiate. And, and there's a lot of technology industries where the pace of being able to innovate and create technology is actually very fast. And so you need content, you need storytelling to differentiate, which I think is the, like, the macro point I'm taking away from what you're saying. I want to move from content deeper into community 
because you have such roots there. It's a topic we've talked about on the show. Kieran, do you want to start with your your, your pet rock of your community definition here or what? Oh, yeah. I'll give you two pet rocks. <laughs> okay, bring out the community pet rocks for her. Let's do, let's do two. By the way, uh, just going back to your original story, Yulia, uh, Joe Biden actually petted my pug. I will tell that story another time, but I have met Joe Biden. He petted my dog. Um, <laughs> the most charming interaction you ever had because he had a conversation with my mom and she still talks about it. Yeah, yeah. he basically stopped his cavalcade of cars in Ireland, like in mid-street to get out and like say hello to me because I was on the street walking my dog, me and, uh, me and my girlfriend, and actually wanted to pick up my pug and pet the pug. <laughs> I was so bewildered. He opened the door and pulled back the door and said, hey, I'm uh, Joe Biden, the former vice president of the United States. Can I pet your dog? And I was like, what is literally going on right now? <laughs> and so I was kind of just stand beside him. And then uh, Anne Marie, my girlfriend said, uh, why did you get a photo? And I was like, oh, no one is going to believe this actually happened to me. No one is going to believe it. But it did happen. It's going to be one of those party stories where you say, it actually yeah. happened, it believe actually me. Happened. Uh, Rachel, who's in HubSpot, was kind enough to get my pug a little jumper that said, I met Joe Biden. But anyway, <laughs> all right, I have two pet rocks. Yes. Um, number one is there is no clear definition of community. Like there's no actual definition of what community is and what lives in it. I've talked to founders and companies where everything is community. Every interaction you have with everyone in the entire world is part of your community. And then others who have it much more tightly defined is like a oh, community of customers. So I think that throws people off. The second thing we can kind of get into is I never see community-led growth being as prevalent as product-led growth or some of these other programs that can help you acquire customers. I always think it's going to be a tool for engagement versus a tool for acquisition of new customers. And I could have a very opposing view to many people, but that is my two things where I hear it described as like, oh, this is how we're going to acquire customers in the future. It's really not. I don't think it is. And I can get into why, why I don't think it is. Why don't you think it is? Okay, great question. <laughs> now, I will say that Web3 could have some mechanisms that truly do turn community on its axis and make, help make it a customer acquisition challenge. I'm talking purely about where it is today and, and predominantly Web2. Now, it depends how you define community. So I define community as if, if you are creating the content yourself and all of those channels, that's an audience. If content is being created without you having to do anything, that's a community. Shout out to Sam Parr, who slacked me that after I tweeted about this uh, and told me this is how you should define it, but he's right. And community has a location, like a forum. It has to be in a forum, Discord, Slack. So there's a group of members. You have to interact with other members. Yeah, and so I think it should be more tightly defined. This is a hot take. This might be Kieran's hottest take on the show yet. And you need to have members. If you're not interacting with other members, it's not a community. And I think uh, meetups do fall into that. There's a des destination, you interact with the people. If you define it that way, I will tell you, you have to build a huge community. If you do the math in number of people, weekly active users, number of people who click on things, go through and actually become a customer to ever for it to ever have a meaningful impact on growth of your business. And there is not that many large communities in the world because communities, and you're the expert here, are much better and are much more authentic when they're smaller. So like it's a counterintuitive point to say community will be how we acquire lots of customers in the future when actually communities are much better when they're much more smaller around a specific thing and more engaged. They're, they're my two hot takes. Do you so. think there's anything that's going to happen for you to evolve your definition of community? Because th those are pretty restrictive things. Like it's like this and this and this and that. How would you define community? If I'm a founder and you're like, hey, you should really build community. What would you define as my community? What's in it? So we take a very non-restrictive definition of community. At the most basic, I would say it's just a collection of people with a shared interest. 
And that's what makes it not an audience. It's actually, you're kind of tied to something. And I think again, like for example, Bitcoin, where people that are organized all across the web come together, just a bunch of internet strangers come together, give it value, like actually sign a value where previously there was none. Like our general online presence is increasing every single year. And so seeing how you know people can come together over a shared values, over a shared interest is that first step. And so it makes it so much easier for companies then to be able to say, hey, like, how do we then grow our sales through community or grow our presence and like awareness through community? And I think the reason why people have such different definitions of community is the fact that people use communities for different ways. For example, we're talking to a team earlier today, actually, and they're saying how they have two different communities. One community that's not not associated to the product. It's simply educational. And there is a highly, um, you know, highly manual process of vetting every single person that comes in. And it's actually a pretty sizable community. And then the other community, it is tied to the product. So it's more around, you know, kind of customer supports and just general like best practices from the product itself. And those are two different separate things. And that first community is more around like, you know, it's all about, hey, how much value can we bring? How much best practices and education can we bring? Can we tie these people, again, internet strangers, can we bring them all together? And the hope is at some point, you know, if it converts, that's great, but that's not really the intention. And I think that was such an interesting model for me because I feel like a lot of founders, especially in early stage where you're, you know, have such a compressed amount of time to get to specific results, for them, they hear the word community, they're like, Great. It's basically going to be our customers. It's also going to be a way for us to to grow, to get sales, to have education. So they're kind of lumping everything together and they're expecting results in short term in a compressed way. And I think the best forms of communities truly are the ones where you have this education piece, you give more than you take. So you're providing a lot of value, but yet you're still like trying to grow it and you're trying to establish yourself as a trusted authority. And really, so that almost like that first variation of the community of the team I was describing, where you're not really looking to get anything out because then it becomes an ad. Like that's, that's my take. Mm-hmm. And so when you're actually trying to have an organic way and having a dual conversation, so a two-way conversation, that then overshared interest, like that for me is a community. And it's frankly, it's almost like, again, so that definition comes from just me reading a lot of anthropology books and history books where like, I feel like it's just the core of human identity where before, like even, you know, in the like really prehistoric days where like we had to congregate over one single geographic location for like safety and like food and shelter. But now I think again, like we still, it's just so innate to go and bond with someone. And I think the inner, obviously, you know, the internet has changed a lot of different things, a lot of human behavior. And I think you can, you can transcend, like you don't have to be in Slack, you don't have to be in one particular group. But I think that's what makes it such a challenge then to organize and to, again, to understand where do you need to be? Like the way that I see it is very amorphous, always moving, evolving ecosystem. That's almost like a living organism like a stranger things of things, right? Right. Like, like it's always, it's always like in the beyond. So you have to know how to organize. You have to know how to mobilize. You have to know how to then consistently show up in those very fragmented ecosystems and social bubbles. And that can be a challenge for a lot of teams. And it kind of goes back to why a lot of companies may not be media companies, but they really truly should be and to grow organically. Yep. Yep. I guess I'm interested, Kev, I'm interested to get your view in it. I, I just, to pull that apart a little bit, 
I think something you said there is what I was actually getting at, which is you have to be interacting with people. The first part that you described, which is coming together around a common vision, that to me is your brand. Like that, that we've, we've commonly defined that as brand. And I think for the majority, the way I look at that is like, that's your audience. Like the audience you grow is around a common vision of the company, which is very, very inherently tied to your brand. And the reason I define community as like, you have to interact with other people. Like the community aspect of your brand, there has to be some sort of interaction going on between members if it's not that, then it, to me, it just seems like the audience, like, cause HubSpot has a very large audience and our community is somewhat more defined in terms of people interacting with other people. And the reason I think it's important is because it helps founders try to figure out like, how do they invest in these different things? If everything is community, it's kind of hard to figure out like, what is my community strategy? Cause everything is in it. Like it's everyone who has the same shared vision. It's much more harder to like invest in that, to try to pull apart, like, how do I make that successful and what do I expect to get from it? And I do believe community has like indirect benefits. I, I totally agree with you there. There's lots of indirect benefits and you described community of product and the community of practice, which that company was building. I agree with those things. I just don't know if we are trying to redefine brand audience into community and that makes it a little bit more blurry for companies to figure out what is the differences between those things. All right, I'm going to come in off the bench. You guys are running a great podcast right now. I'm going to I'm going to give my two cents here because I think there's a lot of really good points that have been debated. I want to try to frame it up a little bit, okay? Battle of the minds. So, Yulia brought up the Tesla example, right? Kieran, you pushed on some general questions around community. Well, that's how I think about brand. That's how I think about these other things. I'm going to give you my way of thinking and you can both agree or disagree with me. So, let's use the Tesla example. So, There's the Tesla brand. Then there's the Tesla movement and purpose, which is energy independence through electric vehicles, right? And those are different. That purpose is a component of what makes that brand great, but it's not the only component. Like you still have to have a safe car. You know, you have to have good design. Other things that make a great brand is beyond the movement. And what Julia's is really talking about is coalescing people around a movement and letting them organize to drive that. And Kieran, one of the things you're advocating for is like key touch points for that catalyzation to to call it a community. Let's use the Kessel example because this is very interesting, right? They've built electric cars. And to do that, they had to build this vertical integrated supply chain. One of the things they had to do was build all this charging infrastructure. And so if I own a Tesla, I have to go and stop at a rest area someplace and charge my Tesla. Who am I going to see? I'm going to see other people there charging their Teslas. And I'm going to talk to them. And like, that's the interaction you're talking about, Karen, but it's not some like forced interaction that has to happen in these like online forums. I actually don't even know if that interaction was something they particularly constructed, right? But there's this movement that then has some places to catalyze, in this case for Tesla owners, beyond the internet, just like where they charge their cars, driving around, doing all those things. And so why are we conflating all these things would be my last kind of question to all of us. And I'll take you back to a little bit about the early days of HubSpot because we both had a movement and we had direct monetization. And I will tell you, those things were most often in conflict with each other. And this is a very important point to understand. So the movement of HubSpot was inbound marketing. We're going to disrupt how the world thinks about doing marketing. There's this bad outbound way of doing marketing and you want to do marketing this inbound way. But nobody knew about inbound marketing. And so you were asking people to believe something new. And once they got it, once they believed it, they were, I actually think, that's the who I thought of the, as the community in the early days, the people who had bought into inbound marketing who were part of the movement, not the people who were downloading the eBooks, coming to our webinars, because we had all of that content on very different topics. Like, you know, 
you get 100 people to show up for an inbound marketing webinar and you'd get 2,000 people to show up for a search engine optimization webinar because that was a way more known, broad topic, right? And I think one of the things here that we're talking about when it comes to community is I think the great communities that are tied to movements are not directly measurable in terms of like demand generation, which is the point you're making here. And I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with both of you. Yeah, it's, I just feel like we're trying to create the new things that is not new. Like we always have talked about having brands with core purposes and like building your tribe around that purpose. What I'm trying to figure out is like, what is the new stuff? Like, and I think I thought the new stuff was, hey, we're actually going to build these forums for people to interact with and collaborate with each other and decentralize a bunch of stuff. And they can actually interact within these forums. They can interact within these meetups. Like a good example is Telsa actually. Telsa do have real like communities that are built around the product and create content for Telsa. Like you probably see it all over Twitter. They have forums where Telsa members get together and non-members get together. People who are passionate about Telsa, they create all this kind of content around the brand. That to me is a community aspect, right? Like interaction, creation of content around the brand. If it's not that, if it's like audience with shared purpose, I'm kind of just unsure how that is any different from what we've always believed in, which is you want to create a transformational message and have a tribe that believes in that transformational message. If we want to call that community now, that's cool. But I'm just saying it's not new. Well, my take is that it's also maybe part of the thing that you're talking about, Karen, is the fact that it's like measuring like what is going on in our community versus actually going at the top of funnel and growing that and growing as a company through this. Because also like my take on this is that if you grow organically and community is part of that. So if you have this like word of mouth digital, social first, community first led growth, then not only does that help with your market share and the mind share, but it's also, it ties into like actual company growth. And what, what I mean by mm. that is it becomes so much easier to hire. You become a talent vortex. You know, you raise smarter money. You raise the money that you want, not the money that you need. You're, because you're also so much closer in your relationship with your customers, advocates, evangelists, you then build better products because the feedback loops are so tight. So I think for like the way that, again, like, maybe part of the reason why we have this more general loose approach, it's it's really not about the definition, but it's about the goal. And I think right now, a lot for a lot of companies, a lot of teams, the goal is to grow in an organic way. And I think for us, again, like investing in a community and maybe for certain companies, like for them saying, hey, it's actually going to be a Slack group. We're going to kind of decide who's going to be the highest value add webinar um, leader, or we're going to have, you know, kind of best practices from someone outside the community. That and engaging there, that's also important. But I think it's also just as important to continue feeding into the community. And again, tapping, kind of going back to my kind of original messaging is like tapping into the very fragmented fields, the very fragmented online, like social bubbles that we have and seeing who else you can bring into the community, who else you can bring into that, whether it's brand or content or messaging or like what, what have you, however you want to define this. But like all of that from a business perspective is super, super, super important. So I think for me, it's not the, you know, prior definition. It's like, hey, like this is the most like novel, cool, sexy thing, but it's something that actually works because for companies, again, even how, you know, like Notion or Figma jumpstarted that community, that level of advocacy that started from a very small group of product using, product loving, product advocating folks, and then spiraled into uh, UGC, spiraled into actual like support groups, very similar to what you were saying, uh, Kip, about Tesla or like Apple, uh, really great examples of that. And then 
being able to go and jumpstart to really generate that word of mouth flywheel, I think ultimately, like that's the thing that affects the bottom line. Yeah, like everything you said, I agree with. And I'm not actually advocating that community has to be measured in in a certain way. But just to your point, like Notion is a perfect example of what I'm saying. Notion's community strategy was very forum-led. There was a ton of different decentralized places on Reddit. And when they thought of community, they, they thought of it as all of these decentralized forums where people were creating content around Notion. Right. It wasn't like, it, it wasn't a definition of every single thing that we do is like part of the community. There was like all of these different decentralized communities where they had fans and Rome was another tool that was very popular for community driven. And again, hugely popular on Reddit and these different forums where people were interacting. And I guess I'm just saying like everything you said is important, but what's different in the future is like there's these kind of interactions that you are incentivizing around your brand. Like there's more ways to incentivize people and you're building communities where people are actually interacting with each other and creating value around the ecosystem. I guess it doesn't really matter because I think we all agree that building a tribe around your brand is really, really important. It's just, I've seen companies who have community teams and they're like, oh, well, maybe the community team should own everything and kind of are unsure what is in community and what is out of community. And I think it just gets a little tricky. And I think it's still really early, like, right? Like, um, this is still a space that it's almost the wild, wild west where like, there's a lot of things that are, and it's actually, it's kind of beautiful that there's so many different like discussions around what is a community, what is not a community. And so everyone is trying to figure out what that is. But I think again, kind of going back to what I said is like right now, companies are looking at their CAC and companies are trying to figure out like, Hey, like, like where does the community piece, even like in the org structure, Talking to so many different companies, it's actually really interesting because sometimes communities are part of growth. Sometimes communities are sitting adjacent to sales. Sometimes they're on the marketing team. Sometimes it's on the brand team. Sometimes it's on social teams. So there's so many, like I think also just even zooming out all these different definitions of teams that do deal with top of funnel. For them, it's very amorphous. Like it's such a gray area. And so people are like, oh, I'm like a social marketing content person. Like, okay. They're like, I also do community. I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> like, So you do exactly. everything. So I think it's, it's going to be really interesting. Again, I think as companies now, before there, I would say there's a lot of uh, catalyzation of this, of this level of thought of kind of going to the organic frameworks. But I think now, especially that it's almost now a necessity and the companies that get this early and start doing this earlier as they look at their CAC as they try to kind of preserve that runway and and try to come out not only stronger, but actually thrive uh, from these market conditions. It's actually going to be a matter of, you know, the companies that kind of get this and unlock this piece, how are you want to define this? But that's going to be the thing that's going to get them there and actually, you know, have that sustainable compounding mode for them. All right. I, we've had what I think is one of the better debates on community that's happened on the internet as somebody who <laughs> consumes a lot of content on this topic. I think this was awesome. I wonder if we should commit to a round two. Like we actually just had a really great debate on community, community measurement. I would love to do a follow-up on community building, drawing the lines between community and content. Because I actually, Kieran, I'm kind of in the middle of, of both of you where I, uh, I think your definition of community is maybe a little too restrictive and mm. Yulia's is a little too broad. And I, uh, and I think getting a little bit more clarity for everybody and for your average founder marketer out there to think about what that investment looks like specifically, how that org design works, those things are, would, I think, be a really awesome follow-up to kind of all the foundation setting we did today. What do we think? I love a good yeah. like tactical content where, you know, it's actually, it's like, how do you, you know, going from the philosophical of like, hmm, let's pontificate on this, but it's actually like, what do I do? Uh, right. We'd love to do that. Like, I do believe community, like if you define community certain ways, yeah, it has a huge impact on driving new customers. 
100%. If your definition HubSpot is a community-led business, and I do actually agree with that. Like we have built a large tribe around our brand. I think getting clear in the definitions helps us figure out is community-led a new way of acquiring customers or the old way redefined and we would just want to invest in the old way. And that is what I'm trying to get to. Is it like there, there's something new in it that we are just is untapped and we're not doing or it's a redefinition of what we're doing, but that redefinition helps us to invest much, much more intelligently in it. And I think it's what which one of those is it. This has been an amazing debate. Thank you so much for everybody listening to this week's episode of Marketing Against the Green. The three of us will be back in the near future, schedules permitting, to do a full another deep dive on all things community, get a little bit more tactical and practical in the next one for everybody out there. And until next time, thank you to Yulia Bell for being with us. Thank you, as always, for Kieran and his weird layered cereal tips. And we'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks, everyone.